the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the young son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called to one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered to his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all, that is my, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Come now, Holy Spirit. Come in power with full assurance, enlivening within us an ability to hear your word to us this morning. And in hearing, may we not just hear, but may we perceive what you have to say. And in perceiving, may we believe, come to faith and trust in Jesus. And so somehow be conformed or transformed into the image 
of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, for it's in his name that we pray, saying, amen. Hey, do you guys remember this from last week? Kids staff, Angie Dancer. Well, Angie's in the service this morning, too. She's usually down with the kids. Uh, she's our children's minister. This week at, at staff, she said, hey, Peter, this kind of sounds like the story of the prodigal son. You remember that in that story that Jesus told, this, uh, uh, the youngest of two sons, he comes to his father and asks for his share of the inheritance that falls to him. In that culture, to request uh, such a thing was to say, Dad, I want your stuff, and I wish you were dead. Miraculously, the father grants his wish. He takes the stuff and goes to this far country where he squanders his inheritance on loose living. Destitute, he decides to return as an employee so he can earn his father's stuff. In other words, he doesn't want his father. He wants his stuff. The father meets him on the road, showers him with grace, which melts the boy's heart. It opens the eyes of his heart. He sees his father's heart and he longs to be a son. So the father throws this party, this lavish, party saying uh, this is my son was lost but is now found the older brother gets angry at his father and his grace towards his younger brother and so he leaves the party goes out into a field where he sits alone and pouts in the darkness it's his own far country the father finds him and this is what he says to him son all that is mine is yours and we're left wondering if that self-righteous older brother will ever join the party. And this was Angie's observation. The party was there all along for both brothers. All that is mine is yours. All things, all people, all space and time. The party was there all along, but the eyes of their hearts were just not open. All things had always been there. What these boys did not see was that the heart of their father had always been there for them. He was their inheritance. And they were his inheritance. And they were each other's inheritance the kingdom was at hand the party was just waiting to happen waiting for a revelation so I was so fascinated by that idea that Peter teased out in that part of the sermon that we are a banquet waiting to happen and that was so good so I think let's go eat ready no Okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll occupy your time a little more. Let's tease that out then. I want to explore that this morning, what it means that we are a banquet waiting to happen. And so let me offer two observations, because after all, the, the, the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal father, in fact, is a real familiar passage to all of us, and I'm sure many of you can identify with uh, various uh, aspects of this story. It really is the gospel summed up in a nutshell, but I want to highlight two things before we get into exploring what it means that we are a banquet waiting to happen. The first is I want to look at the extent to which we are lost. You know, what's fascinating about this story is, and what most commentators, what Peter highlights there and what most commentators um, are now um, bringing to light, is that both sons are lost in the story. To be sure, the youngest son is the one that we normally consider to be lost. 
lost, right? He looks like a lost son. He's the one in disobedience, runs off into a far country and squanders all the inheritance that he asked for his father from his father before he even could or should have, right? In, in essence, wishing his father dead. And he goes off into a far country and there he squanders all that that he's been given and he comes to the end of himself to the point where he's eating from the slop of pigs and he says, oh man, I don't even, I'm not even worthy enough to come back and be a part of the family again, but maybe I can be a servant. So he's certainly lost, right? We can see that. But what I love about what Peter teased out and what others are now saying is it's not just the younger son who looks at his father as a means to another end. In fact, if you look at the story, the older son does the same exact thing. Hey, he may not have gone off into a far country, but when the son, his younger brother comes home, what does he do? He pouts. And he, com- he condemns his, not only his younger brother, but he also condemns his father. When his father comes out to bring him back inside, he says, you never gave me what I was asking for, what I deserved. I was obedient from the beginning, and you never even uh, slaughtered a, a calf for me. And so what we see is the heart of the, the older uh, brother was at the, in, in the same place as the younger son. He looked to the father as a means to a greater end. To, to, he wanted to be in relationship with the father in and so, uh, only so, uh, so far that it would provide him what he really wanted. He wanted control of his, over his own life just like his younger brother. And so they were both lost. Regardless of where they were in the story, their hearts were both far from the father's heart. Something was wrong. And when the younger son came to the end of himself, he could see it for the first time. He thought he was gonna get something when he got the control that he longed for, he got the stuff that he wanted, but it didn't fill him, it didn't provide the things that he thought it would provide. He looked around the world and he said, hey, this isn't right. There's something off here. Remember this clip from last week? Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. 
After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Something's wrong. And, and isn't that the sliver that's driven us to this place? Don't we, when we look around at the world and we look at the way, the state, uh, the condition of not only our own hearts but of the whole world, don't we have to say there's something wrong? And so in part, that's what's driven us here to this place. Certainly, we're here in part because we have the spirit of the old, older brother, that of the religious heart that wants to obey to get something out of God. But there's also the part of us that's the son who's come to his senses and says, hey, there's something wrong here. And it's a bitter pill to swallow when you realize that you're not in control. When you've come to the end of yourself and you can't put yourself back together. So something's wrong, right? And we are lost. We are all lost. I remember when I first kind of realized how the extent to which I was lost was my time in high school. You know, my brother, I have, I'm the oldest of three boys, or four boys, I have three younger brothers, and the one closest to me in age, my brother Joe, we always had that sibling rivalry that exists between brothers that are about a year, year and a half apart. Joe was always the, the best athlete in the family, and uh, I think some part of me felt a rivalry with that, that he was, I was older than him, but he was better at all these things than me, but I was always bigger, so I could always kick his butt. And I'm sure I was not an easy brother to deal with on that front. But um, the natural rivalry that existed within us as we grew up in elementary school and junior high uh, broke out into something of a cold war in high school. I think I shared a little bit with you some of my story last month about how my family, we, we moved to, uh, to Colorado from Southern California when I was halfway through my freshman year in high school. And you can imagine how difficult that would be for not just a freshman, but so, to come into school halfway through the year when all the other freshmen had made friends. And I remember sitting uh, in the hallway during lunchtime with my sack lunch, eating by myself, and I was so alone, I was so lonely. I, was, I felt so dislocated. I didn't know where I fit in the world anymore. The rug had been pulled out from under me, and I think I began to fall into a kind of depression that existed all through my four years in high school. I never really cultivated a, a deep uh, set of friendships, and I spent most of my time withdrawing in on myself and reading fantasy novels because I wanted to live in a world that was bigger and more heroic and more powerful than the one that I was experiencing. I looked around in my own life and I said something was wrong and I wanted to have that kind of life. And, and so I withdrew in on myself. And you know what that looked like? That looked like I was a, the good kid. I didn't get into any trouble. I didn't act out. I was kind of quiet. I mean, that's a shocking to most of you who know me now. Right? And you know what was interesting is whereas I withdrew in on myself, my younger brother, Joe, he acted out. Um... And he got into all the kind of trouble that, you know, the litany of, of trouble that teenagers tend to get into. Um, and I remember feeling so disapproving of him, so critical and judgmental of the life that he was li living. And I remember that, and I'm sure that he looked at me and said, what a loser. This guy has no life. 
And he was probably judgmental of me as well. And I remember that uh, when we used to live, we lived in the same basement in rooms next, right next to each other, and we would sometimes go weeks, multiple weeks, without acknowledging each other's presence, without even saying a word to one another. We'd walk right past. And I look back on that time and I say to myself, boy, we were both so lost. I mean, it looked different. He looked like the younger brother, I looked like the older brother. He disobeyed, I followed all the rules. But you know what, our hearts were just the same. Just so lonely and broken and isolated and not having a sense of place. We were in the same place, it just looked different. Oh gosh, the extent to which we are all lost, right? But what I love about this story is not, does it, not only does it reveal to us the extent to which we're lost, it also reveals to us the length to which the Father will go to, to love us and bring us back home, right? So, for instance, when you look at the story, you realize that God, the Father, right, has no shame. He, he's not too proud. He, when he sees his son returning back, while he was still far off, while he was still in the far country, he sees him and glimpses him on the horizon and he picks up his cloak and his robes and he sprints, he runs to his son. Now, that may seem like a great compassionate story to us, but you don't know how shocking it was to the culture of the time in which it was first heard. For a father to lift up his robes and expose his legs and run to someone who had wished him dead, had taken the inheritance and squandered it, shamed the father for, for the whole world to see, for him to do that and then embrace him and welcome him back home, it was the most shameful of things for a father of that time. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the father is not proud. He's not too proud. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean when the, the Bible, the New Testament says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Does that mean that God then uses Jesus to accomplish a task that he wanted to accomplish and Jesus is the means to that end? Or does it mean that God was in Christ? And Jesus, when we look at him, he reveals not just the method that God accomplishes salvation, but in fact, in fact reveals the very heart, the very character of God. That God was, in fact, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. And so what that tells us then, if we take it seriously, is that God is God not in his, just in his majesty, his exaltedness, he's also God in his humility, in his obedience. He's the opposite of proud, he's obedient. And so when we see Jesus, for instance, in Mark chapter one, when he is baptized along with all the sinners of the world in the Jordan River, and God announces him to be his son, we see that that humility, that obedience to align himself with us is in fact him showing the character of God that God obeys. Or when we see Jesus in Matthew chapter four be tempted, and he's tempted with the idea of demonstrating his worth and his power and, his, uh, and the character of who he is through the ways that all of all the rest of the world does this, through power and miracles and magic, to display to the world his glory when he resists that temptation and instead is obedient in the wilderness, he's the son of God. Or when we see him in the garden of Gethsemane, what does he say when he's agonizing? He says, not my will, but your will be done. 
He's obedient to the Father. And he displays himself to be the Son of God in that. Or when we see him on the cross, willing to undergo and be uh, uh, rejection and being forsaken, uh, there we see the very character of God. God is obedient. In fact, it is only God who is truly obedient in this life. It is only him who has the capacity for not just exaltation but humility. So we see that God is not just God and his high majesty, right? He's not just the holy one, but he's also the one who stands in the place and it's under the uh, accusation of a sinner. He's not just the king of glory, but he's the one clothed in shame. He's not just the, the, the high and majestic one, he's also the one that's brought low in deep humility. He's not just the everlasting, eternal one, he's the one who undergoes and comes under the cloud of death. And you know what? This is not by accident. This is not by accident. Because when we look to Jesus, we realize that God is not proud. That God, in his economy of salvation, has demonstrated his very character in grace, and he allows his grace to bear the cost of his condescension and his coming to us, and to taking on our shame and guilt and making it his own, to becoming responsible for our life. The one who revealed this and highlighted this for me was um, Karl Barth, the great theologian from the last century. Listen to what he says when he says that this is not by accident. It was always grace for sinners, Karl Barth says. Grace shown to his enemies. Grace in the light of which man can only stand and acknowledge himself as a transgressor. And therefore unworthy of that grace. The son of man from heaven had to be the friend of plebeians and sinners and die between two thieves. He had to because God was already the God who loved his enemies. God is not proud. And we see that in Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our transgressions against us. He made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is good news, right? It's good news. So what happens when a people hear good news like that? What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like something like this.
What happened? Sir, he did it, sir. Neil, he did it. Did what? He ended the war. The machines are gone. The war is over, sir. The war is over. What does it look like when a people hear good news? They throw a party, right? There is the people of Zion waiting for the, with no hope for the machines to come. The enemy is at the doorstep. And then all of a sudden, unexpected, it makes no sense, this Neil Anderson, this son, this new son of man, gives his life as a ransom for his people. And he makes peace by his blood. Right? And he reconciles the opposing forces. And everyone is set free. The salvation has come and someone runs to the cave where they're expecting doom and announces to them that the war is over and what do they do? They party. They celebrate. That's good news. That's what happens when good news comes to you. Do you know what good news means? The word is euangelion. It's gospel. So, the, and it wasn't a religious word originally. It was actually a secular word. It was a word used in regards to big things happening in human history that changed things. So, for instance, when a king has been crowned, right, has been born, they would announce the euangelion, the good news, the gospel that the, uh, king has, the new king has been born into the world. Or when a victory had been won, like a, a general would send back a herald to the city that was under threat and say, hey, good news gospel to you that you are set free you're saved a victory is won when a king's been crowned when a victory has been won something has happened in history that changes your condition forever that is good news for you and what's left for you to do but to celebrate to throw a party and that's why I think we see parties happening all around Jesus, right? And so I want to ask what happens when we become a people that realize that we are a banquet, a party, a celebration waiting to happen, to take place. Let me offer three suggestions for why we are a banquet waiting to happen. First, banquets, feasts, celebrations, they're experiential, they're sensory, right? They're all about um, uh, taste and sight and see. You know, the Bible, the New Testament says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And did you know that in the first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John, do you remember what he does? He turns water into wine. Do you remember that? Do you remember how his mother and, and the, the master of the banquet come to him and say, we've run out of wine? And, and so what does he do? He turns 150 gallons of water into wine. Why does he do that? And why does the Bible, the, the Gospel of John, call that a sign? Right? Or why does Jesus party all the time with all sorts of people? In fact, he came to have a reputation for doing this. Well, I think it's that he's saying that the salvation is experiential. It's sensory. You need to experience this good news that has come in Jesus, who is, in fact, the master of the banquet. So that you need to know, you have to, you have to move beyond just knowing but experiencing that good news. 
The great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, says this uh, along these lines. He says, there is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. You see? That we need to, the reason we were called to be a banquet is we need to see, we need to taste that and know that God is good. So if you're stuck in shame and guilt, it's not just enough to have a knowledge that God is merciful, right? You need to know his mercy. If you're dealing with anxiety and fear, it's not enough to know and to declare that God is in control and sovereign over all the world. You need to see and experience the ways in which he's orchestrating and moving in your life so that you can then trust him and fall back in his grace. Banquets are experiential, they're sensory. We need to experience not just, and know not just the objective reality of his salvation, but the subjective realization of that salvation in our lives. So that's why I think um, there are banquets, because they're sensory, they're experiential. But secondly, I think that we have banquets all throughout the New Testament, and parties all going on all the time, is because that they're material, they're physical, right? Have you ever been to a party or a good celebration that didn't have good food involved. I mean, every wedding, every family gathering, I mean, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. It's one of the best holidays of the year, right? And why is it the best? Because there's a big feast that we're all involved in. And we look for, I look forward to that way too much. Right? Jesus, he left his disciples a meal, right? And what does he do when he, what, why, why does he leave a meal? Because I think what he's saying is, hey, this meal, this world, this material thing that we're a part of, that we are involved in, that we live and move and have our being in, this is all good. Remember in the garden when God created the heavens and the earth, he declared it to be good, to be very good. And so the world that we live in is called to be good, even though something's wrong with it now, that it's, it's, God has his heart is, is in it and for it. That God is the God who is for us. So it's not enough to, to look at the world and say, hey, this is the, the venue in which all, we unfold all these personal narratives of salvation that take place, and then once we go to heaven, it's all wiped away. No, 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 this is in fact, the world is the theater in which God's grace is on display. And he's at work renewing it and reconciling it and making it into a new creation, bringing it back. You know, the Christian faith is the most materialistic in that sense of all faiths because we say that this is good in echo and honor of God. And so to, uh, to experience his feast and his banquet, it's to acknowledge that it's just a not enough to personally appropriate salvation in our life, but to all, we have to, we're called to share that grace with others. We need to be about the physical, concrete renewal of things in partnership with God. We have to give of ourselves, concretely, in real ways, in tangible ways, in physical ways, to the world that, needs, that is hurting and broken and needs to know his love and reconciliation. The banquet reminds us of that that we're all called to this feast. And that brings up my third point, that, that uh, banquets are communal 
in, by nature, right? They're meant to be done together. This life, this world, this faith that we are in a journey on, we were never meant to do it alone. We have to have bands of friends, brothers and sisters in Jesus, a family of faith to be a part of. And why is that the case? Why is, it, why is there no concept in the New Testament about the individual Christian, but always the Christian in the context of the whole, the individual in the context of the whole? Well, C.S. Lewis tells a story that I think uh, illuminates one aspect of that. You know, he was a part of a, a, a group of friends. They called themselves the Inklings. They were all writers and, and Christians, and they would gather together. Uh, there were others like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien involved and, and Charles Williams. In fact, um, Lewis, when he's reflecting on the nature of Christian friendship in an essay uh, found in, in The Four Loves, he, he talks about how um, when when Charles Williams was surprisingly taken away from him and the rest of the crew, um, when he lost his life just following the, the Second World War, how when Lewis, when he lost his friend, he didn't just lose his friend as he related to him, but he lost Charles as Charles related to all his other friends. See, there was something about the individual and the context of the whole that brought about all these different facets of who Charles was. Um, C.S. Lewis may have interacted with him in one way, but he got to see Charles interact with his other friends in other ways. And so they, all his, that community of friendship brought out and teased out all the various aspects of Charles, who he was. And so Lewis lamented that he didn't just lose Charles as he knew him, he lost Charles as others knew him, right? When he was taken away. And there's something true about that, I think, that the individual can only be understood and known in the context of the community. And how much more so is that true about Jesus? When we look at Jesus in other people's eyes, we get a fuller picture of who he is and what he's about. We understand and explore his character, his grace and his mercy that much better when we experience him in the context of the community. And you know what's more than that? The world gets to see Jesus in our life together. That's right. Somehow in our life together as God's people, we give witness to who God really is in the world. And the world comes to know him and to give glory to him and to honor him. So we were meant to do this together. We are a banquet waiting to happen and somehow in our life together we become a taste, a foretaste of that glorious banquet that's to come. That banquet that is at the end of human history. That banquet, the wedding supper of the lamb as Revelation talks about it. That's in chapter 19 at the very end of the full arc of human history. That somehow in our life together as church, we get to give a taste to the world of what's to come. And so that's why we are a banquet. That's why we are called to be reconciled to God in Christ. I remember when I first realized not only the, the, the extent of how, how lost I was, but also the length to which God would go um, to bring me back home, I remember when I really began to realize that. After high school, I moved to call, uh, to back to California. And as God, I think I shared this with you, as God began to breathe me back to life 
through the friendships that I began to develop there, as I began to fall in love with him again and again, all over again, um, I remember I began to mourn the state of my relationship with Joe. And I realized I had that come to terms moment with him and I, in my mind where I realized if this trajectory that we're on keeps up, I'm going to lose my brother. And we will, ne- we won't, we will be a brothers only in name. And I didn't want that to happen. But I didn't know how to reconcile us. I didn't know how to bring us back as family, as brothers. So I began to pray. I began to pray that God would restore our relationship. And I remember when I found out that Joe was gonna come out in the week of Thanksgiving to visit me and the rest of the family. We had extended family out in Southern California. And he was gonna take a week to come out here. And I didn't hear from him about that. I heard it through my parents. And I, I remember praying to God that day, God, it would be just so great if he and I, Joe and I could hang out one or two days that week. Could you help make that happen? I remember this. And then Joe came out that first day and he called me up and he said, hey, you wanna get together? I'm like, yes, let's go. What do you want to do? And then the next day, he calls me. He calls me up again. Say, hey, what are we doing today? And we hung out not one day or two days or three days, but all seven days that he was out there. And it culminated in the Thanksgiving weekend that we had with all the family. And I know that that may seem, oh, cool to you, but it felt like a miracle to me. I couldn't imagine how that could have happened unless God had intervened. And I began to see the extent, the length to which God would go to bring us back home and bring us back into the family. And so, of course, there has to be a celebration when those who are lost are now found. Of course. And of course, it is always and ever and always shall be to his glory and not our own. To, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. So that's why we gather around this table this morning. Jesus left his disciples a meal that was meant to be experienced, that was meant to be physical, held and touched and consumed, and to be nourishing. That was, a meant, that was meant to speak and tell the world of something that is to come to be done together. And so this morning, you are invited to this table. You are invited to take a piece of Jesus and to experience him and to know him in the deepest places and to know not only the extent to which you are lost, but the extent and the length to which he will go in Christ, that God would would move into the far country in obedience, not in disobedience, on your behalf to find you and to bring you back home to the Father. And so uh, this morning, I pass on to you what was first entrusted to me, that on the night that the Savior was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it and given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after that, he took the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. 
And the Apostle Paul is good to remind us that every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim his saving death until he comes again. We become a foretaste of what's to come. Friends, you're invited to come to the table this morning. You have to know that this is, the, this is the Lord's table. It's his meal, it's his banquet. He's the master of the banquet. And so you don't have to have your act together. You just have to have put your faith into him and rest in him and trust that he is even now bringing you back home to the Father, to his glory forever and ever. So you're invited to come forward. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and consume it. And in doing that, have a taste of the banquet, the, cell, the, the wedding supper of the lamb. And then you're invited after our service and we're done worshiping to go back downstairs and to be his church together. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come. Amen. And so you are a banquet waiting to happen. And uh, we're going to party. But in case you were wondering, I want you to know that my brother Joe and I, since that time, have, I've watched God move us deeper and deeper into relationship with each other to the point where he's not just my brother anymore, anymore. He's like one of my best friends. Like we'll talk all the time. We talk trash about Tim Tebow and Peyton Manning and like the Rockies and the Dodgers. But we also get very real and we'll talk about um, struggles that we have. We'll talk about issues of faith, all sorts of things. And when we start feeling alone, we know we can call each other. And when we start feeling lost, we can be Jesus for one another. So now here then, this word from Isaiah 25, verses six through um, eight, as our benediction. God then says, on this mountain, and that's the mountain of Zion, the site where Calvary takes place. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever in himself. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. And let's go have a party. Let's enjoy some chili, okay? Amen.